Let, let me start first of all with this tight time for questions. Someone just asked me over there, and it seems a good place to start. Is they said, well, look, could you <clears throat> just give us a potted rundown of how it works for you as a church? So, yeah, that, that seems a good idea. So just a very potted, you know, so I mean, ha how it works in the church that I'm, I'm part of. Um, we meet Sunday afternoons. We get together at 3 o'clock. Um, and we, we, we just have complete, completely open time. No one leads it. Um, we, you know, I mean, there's two or three guys who've got guitars, um, and they'll, you know, they'll just strike up. We'll, we'll sing. We'll pray. Um, we, we look to people to just bring a little teaching, five, ten minutes. No, no one dominates. Um, I may be a Bible teacher, but, 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 but I won't do any more on a Sunday than anyone else. I might share something for two or three minutes, but that's all you get out of me. Um, and, and we're just looking to, to see the Lord move through everyone there. Um, we, we, as I say, pray, share together, and sing, and worship the Lord, and, and it just works like that. The, the, the children are with us. We, we, you know, we don't have a great many at the moment. We're, we're fairly small, but then a biblical church is pretty small anyway. But, but, but we're smaller than we've been in the past. But uh, the children are there. Um, it's uh, Paul expected. Uh, the children to be when when he wrote letters these letters would be read out at churches and churches came together on the lord's day and uh so so when paul wrote letters he wouldn't say oh and you parents you make sure you tell your children to be obedient he says children be obedient he expected the children to be there and uh, i mean what's what's the best way for children to learn how to worship and to you know to, to learn how to praise and how to share well it's to sit there and watch mum and dad and everyone else do it and uh, so, so that's just completely wide open, and uh, you know maybe we'll 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 be at that for an hour, hour and a quarter. Um, then the rest of the day is just spent together, and and usually around half five, six o'clock, we have the love feast. Everyone brings food, and we just eat a meal together, and we we. We have the one loaf there. We have a, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, we get a bottle of juice, uh, fruit grape juice, and it's just poured out. And when you line up and get your dinner and that, you know, you just have whatever you want. But we, we, we just have a, a bit of bread. We just grab some of that bread and the little, you know, sort of tumbler of that 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 juice so that 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 you know everyone might not have the shepherd's pie everyone might not have um you know the same dessert but 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 we're sharing of that one loaf and we're sharing of that one cup so that there's something that we're all eating and drinking together that's in common and that is that is our unity in jesus and uh you know and then then the rest of the day people stay however long they want and and go um we 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 go around different houses. We've got four houses that we rotate around. Um, the, the love feast is always back at someone's house. Um, now, in England, we, we, we often have small houses and, and often have, sadly, neighbour problems. And with, with two of the places that host us, um, it would be awkward to have anything going on there that would make a lot of noise. I am talking about singing. So on two occasions in the month, because of that, we, we, we just have a hall. And what we do is um, on those occasions, rather than having everything at that house or, you know, one of these two houses that can't host the whole thing, what we do, we go to the hall first, we sit around in a circle, we just pretend it's a lounge, and it doesn't become a service because we're in a hall, we just sit around in a circle and we just carry on exactly the same as if it were one of the weeks when everything is at a house and we just have 
our open sharing time and our singing and our praying and our encouraging and building each other up. And then we'll go back for the love feast and the rest of the day. Um, we, we, we meet on Tuesday evenings, as I said in uh, one of the earlier talks, we have Bible study. Um, that uh, can take many forms. Sometimes it's me spouting, lecture format. Although it's just in someone's room and sitting down. I'm not standing up and with a mic and stuff like that. But um, often it's someone else doing it. Or even when I'm doing it, often it'll just be something discussional, something interactive, something very dialogue. Um, Friday evenings we meet for prayer and uh, Blinder and I are able to host that. We've only got a little place, um, but we can just get everyone in for the prayer evening. Um, well, or those who normally come. Obviously you don't get everyone on the Friday because of kids and things like that. Um, and, uh, but during, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine there's a day of the week that someone isn't with someone. So, so we've very much got that daily you know, together in each other's houses. I mean, obviously, we all have a life outside of the church. Of course we do. But, but the church is our extended family. We say, you know, I mean, Belinda and I see it, that Belinda and I and Bethany are the new, our nuclear family, and nothing impinges or encroaches on that. But, but the church is our extended family. And, um, you know, and sort of we, we, we hold our marriage and our home completely open for anyone that the Lord, you know, wants to bring along. I mean, our, our, our door is open. And um, so, you know, in, in, in many ways, that's, that's, that's kind of it, really. And uh, even, even our detractors, uh, even the people who think that we're a cult, and, and uh, I mean, we, we do all we can to just reach out in fellowship with other churches. I mean, we're, you know, as I say, it's not an issue for us in that sense. I mean, we have to have fellowship with anyone. But uh, frequently we find that people in the fellowship, you know, who sort of visit other churches. And of course, these churches try to rescue them from being part of the Chigwell Christian Fellowship. And we try and laugh about that because sometimes it gets a bit sad. But uh, even our detractors say, hey, yeah, what well, Chigwell Fellowship, yeah, that's that cult. But they're, they're, yeah, they're just like family. And uh, yeah, that delights us because that's exactly what we're like and that's exactly what we're supposed to be like. So, so that, that just gives you, that's kind of how it works at Chigwall. And, um, yeah, you know, so, so let's, let's now move into questions. So please, sir, have, Alan. Yeah, I have a two-parter, I think. It depends on your first answer. Um, you brought up the uh, verse, I praise you for remembering me and everything and holding uh, to the teachings just as I pass on. Corinthians 11, verse 2, and of course that heads up a particular tradition or, or teaching or command in verse 6, I believe he's referring to in that passage. How do you take that verse as far as a tradition that we should still maintain? Uh, verse 6 being, if a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut, up, cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. What, uh, what, what would you do with that kind of... Right. Oh, okay. So, what you're asking is, what is my understanding um, in that passage when Paul writes to Corinth, sorting everything out about, you know, how they should meet? Um, what do I make of this thing about, you know, sort of women and the head coverings and stuff like that? Now, obviously, I haven't got time to go into it in great detail because it would, I, I, I would need an hour to do it. 
Um, but when, I mean, my understanding is that when you take, um, you know, into account the cultural background it's against, and then taking the Greek um, in the passage, I mean, not that I speak Greek, but I know how to access uh, those who do speak Greek, as it were, um, that what it, what it seems to boil down to, in my understanding, is that what Paul is dealing with there is uh, the issue of whether or not women and men should be veiled in worship, because the Jews were. And what he's dealing with there, uh, there's, there's a conflict between the Greeks and between the Jews who made the church up. Uh, you know, look, who should be veiled and under what circumstances. And what it boils down to is that Paul is saying uh, no one should be veiled because as believers, whether men or women, we, we, we see the Lord face to face. The veil has gone in Christ. But what he's saying is that God has given women, women ought to have long hair and that long hair acts as a sign to the angels, don't ask me why, but that's who it's assigned to, acts as an order to show that even though women do not need veils because they have Jesus face to face as do men, uh, but nevertheless um, the the man is the head of the family and there is a submission to the men folk amongst the women. And of course this is all tied up with the fact that women cannot have, uh, cannot be elders in the church. And so to my understanding of it is that he, he's saying, no, uh, you don't need to be veiled, um, but the women do need to have long hair, which kind of acts like one. Um, the Greek men had long hair, and ironically, although the Greeks were saying, no, we don't need veils, and they were right when it came to you know, the actual dispute, the ironic thing is, it's Paul saying, but you Greeks, you, you men, you've got long hair acting like a veil, so you need to get your hair cut, and uh, the women have long hair, and that is, their long hair is given to them for a covering, and, and when you get the phrase for a covering in the Greek, it means instead of. And uh, that, that's my understanding. Obviously, different people have different understandings, um, but that is our honest understanding of, of, of those verses. And so, therefore, um, I suppose I would say that the ladies ought to have long hair and certainly longer hair than their husbands. But it was an issue because the Greek men had long hair and the Jews would veil themselves for worship. So it, th that was an ongoing thing then. Uh, so, yeah, what it boils down to is women ought to have long hair. If it could be demonstrated that it was really talking about a veil and not long hair, which I believe, do you think that that tradition should hold today, or would you offer the fact that since it was a cultural practice at that time, that we should uh, not be bound by that cultural practice today? And if, if that be the case, if you're going to argue from that permanent that it's a cultural uh, and not a timeless command, uh, why wouldn't many other things be relegated If I honestly, if, if my best understanding, and also let me throw in here the best understanding of the church of which I'm part, because churches thrash things out consensually, all right, but for my part, if I believed that that passage was saying that women should have a veil, I don't believe that's what the passage is saying, but if I did believe that, I would say women ought to have a veil. I wouldn't relegate it because it's precisely at these points where people try to say, hey, look, uh, these are just cultural. It's precisely at these points where Paul argues, not from culture, he argues from what happened in the Garden of Eden. These are precisely not cultural things. Um, so, but, I mean, even if I felt that it was veils, if, if the church was not at consensus about that, I would, I would go with the consensus. 
Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that one person can say, well, look, I'm an elder, you've got to do it. That's the very thing elders can't do. So in regards to these, churches need to thrash these things out consensually. But um, I, for one, if I did honestly believe that Paul was talking about veils, then I, I, I would say that women ought to be veiled. Um, in the same way that if I, if I honestly believed that there was a complete bar on women speaking and taking part in that, con- in that open worship. If I thought the Bible said that, I would say the women ought to be silent. And indeed, in some of the fellowships here, indeed uh, the fellowship in Atlanta uh, that uh, we were at a few days ago, their women wouldn't speak during that time of open sharing. However, uh, my understanding is that precisely because Paul deals with the fact that uh, women to pray and prophesy ought to have long hair, um, that his thing about silence is a limited silence under certain conditions, which I understand to be the the testing of prophecy, um, which which will probably be more for eldership to do with the church, but therefore that wouldn't be appropriate for women who cannot be elders. Um, so, So for me, these things aren't cultural, um, but um, nevertheless, um, you know, sort of like, yeah, if I felt differently, I, I would say so and teach it. Uh, but again, they wouldn't be things that, um, you know, sort of like I'd, uh, you know, they're not falling out over things. And uh, I think part of being a church is to be willing to submit, um, maybe even to a consensus that you can't fully agree with. Uh, not if it was a moral issue, that, that would be different. But I think sometimes we're called to simply submit to a consensus that we might not go along with. But then we can simply pray that, indeed, if we're right and everyone else is wrong, the Lord can sort that out. So you would agree with my concern that, that a cultural, uh, a, hermit, a hermeneutic that takes and imports a cultural argument into the text of, of Scripture is a threat to all hermeneutics. Once you start to unravel the sweater by saying this is relegated to a cultural framework and this is not, it seems to me there's no end to unraveling the authority of scripture. Yes, that that that's right. I wouldn't I wouldn't see things like that as cultural. Let me let me give you an example of something because I think all these things need to be looked at on their own merits. But for instance, um, in England, uh, I don't quite know what the situation here is, but uh, in England, uh, for instance, we have a a social security system, so that if you had a widow um, who was unable to provide for herself in any way, um, then there would be benefits that quite rightly she could draw on, and we all kind of pay tax into the pool, um, you know, so that those who are less well-off can, can have that. Now, of course, in the ancient world in which the churches were in, that wasn't the case. And uh, what you see, uh, you see it in Acts with the, you know, giving out of the arms to the widows. And also when Paul writes to Titus and Timothy, he gives instructions for which widows ought not not to be on the church list to be provided for. Now, in a situation, if we had a, a widow in the church who was on benefits that she was entitled to from the state, then it would be silly to have a church list of people that needed to be provided for by the church. But the point is that that doesn't change the fact that in a family, and a church is a family, all the time the church corporately will make itself responsible for responding to any genuine need that it sees in anyone, uh, be it believers in the church or be it believers in other churches or indeed unbelieving neighbours. Um, so the point is that some churches might not need a list for the widows, 
because they're being taken care of, they're getting their money from the state, and I have no problem with that. But if you were in a country where that wasn't the case, then a church would need to have a list for the widows to really make sure that no one was left out. Um, you know, but having said that, I mean, it, it is certainly true um, at, at, at Chigwell. I think anyone who came in and became part of a church would, I think, see... Um, very much a living example of uh, something that in actual fact Voltaire said I mean no, no friend of Christianity but uh, Voltaire said money's like muck it's only good when spread around um, and, and I think that is going to be true of biblical churches that there's an awful lot of sharing resources um, so that those who don't have as much uh, are certainly helped shall we say by those who do and uh, you know who, who have more so yeah we, we certainly see um, I think we would say um, sacrificially parting with one's money, uh, I think we've, we've experienced as being maybe one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. And um, I think that uh, uh, you don't, when, when people understand sacrificial giving, as indeed the early church was taught in no uncertain terms, uh, you certainly have no need either of tithing or collections or anything unbiblical like that. Yes, sir. If uh, you were to write a job description... What would that be? Because you know the, the way you're defining the church, and the way you, know, you have uh, put before us the mm. biblical view of uh, the church. In that regard, what is the the, the purpose of appointing someone? You know, what mm. what is their responsibility? What's the the job description is yeah, the, 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 I mean, I would, I would define elders in terms of safety net, uh, where the buck stops, uh, the wiser older brothers, um, and more than anyone else, and this is in, and remember, um, it's not, it's not so much a question of appointing someone, it's just recognising someone, that's, that's, that, that's the key to it, but these, these are going to be the people that at rock bottom people know they can go to at any time, day or night. Um, so, so kind of like, you know, you may, uh, you know, this may sound extreme, but, you know, you may have a need at three o'clock one morning. Uh, you might be a little bit iffy about some of the guys um, in the church turning up on them, but the elders, that's no problem at all, because you know you can. And, it, it, I mean, that's what I'd say. But outside of that, I mean, elders are certainly going to play a part in teaching, um, because at the end of the day, you're, you're looking for people to be growing in the Lord. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're looking for as parents is for Belinda to grow up. And so, therefore, everyone in the church, you're, you're one... Oh, sorry, Bethany, did I say Belinda? Oh, goodness. I'm meat. I'm meat. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that you know, all, all, all the time you're looking uh, for, for people to be being brought into maturity. And at the end of the day, the, the, the elders, I suppose, are the examples of that. Um, they're, they're the people that people can look at and say, well, I need to know how to do it. Um, yeah, well, I'm looking at him. I, I can see how to do it. Um, it, it. You know, I think it's that. They're, they're the odd job men. They're, you know, they're the dog's bodies. Um, and uh, there they're are elders with more specific ministries. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I would come in that. In, you know, in that category, I'm what you would call a teaching um, <coughs> elder type thing. Um, also, with a you know what you would call a translocal ministry, because churches share, no one church had all the ministries; they kind of shared it out. Uh, you know, but at the end of the day, the elders are the old dependables, so everyone knows they can count on. Um, if something goes wrong in the meeting, I mean, if someone comes in 
a visitor maybe, and there you are all sharing together, and someone comes in who sees an opportunity for, hey, here's freedom, I don't normally get this, so you know they're going to get my latest revelation whether they like it or not. Well, if other people haven't quite got the bottle to deal with that, you can count on one of the elders to do it. it that's how I'd see it. If they ain't got, yeah, the bottle, the courage, or you know, so so that's what I mean. The elders are where the buck stops. But um, you know, but in using, you know, I mean, I, I'm speaking functionally. I mean, I, I see eldership. It is a function. It's not a position. It it is a function. Um, and it's it's these are the fathers in Christ, as Paul talks about. And uh, oh goodness, yes, sir. Uh, I had a little problem with uh, you trying in compassion to excuse the early church fathers on the one hand and yet uh, faulting them on the other hand. My question in quoting the John passage talking about the Holy Spirit will lead and guide us. Yes. Lead and guide you to all <coughs> true. Uh, and then saying that they didn't have the New Testament canon on the other hand. Right. Uh, and they couldn't have truth apart from the New Testament canon. Uh, did the Holy Spirit fail then to teach the early church fathers in that they didn't have the New Testament canon? Right, what I'm saying is, it was perfectly understandable that until uh, the New Testament was there for church leaders to tuck under their own take-home and read, all right, and until they had that, <clears throat> it's understandable that errors were going to be made pertaining to things that the rest of Scripture that they did have didn't deal with. But once they get into saying that if you, if you sin in certain ways, then you're just lost because you've sinned. Well, that's going to get... They did have the Old Testament. They did know about King David. Can you see what I mean? So, so some of their errors... I mean, just knowing the Old Testament should have stopped them being so daft. But there are other things as well when it comes to church practice where until they had the whole of the New Testament it was understandable that they got things wrong. Now, the thing about the Holy Spirit leading into all truth, yeah, it is true. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit for all of us is to lead us into truth. But of course, for, for us today, and this has been true of all believers for the last 1,600 odd years who have access to the New Testament, the, the thing about the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth is enlightening us as to the teaching of the Bible. Now, the thing about the disciples, what was unique is that they had an anointing of the Spirit that was one-off. And what was one-off was this. They wrote the New Testament scriptures. They had a unique one-off anointing that enabled them to be infallible as sinful men in bringing New Testament revelation. Now, that was a unique anointing that no one has had since the New Testament canon closed when John died. Now then, I sometimes hear from God there is subjective revelation and guidance. Of course there is. The Bible tells you you cannot marry an unbeliever, but it doesn't tell you which believer you're supposed to marry. Can you see what I mean? So, of course, there is subjective revelation and guidance. And I can look back over my Christian life and I can see many examples of guidance where it seems I heard right. But there are many, many more. It was quite obvious I heard wrong. It don't matter. You can put it right. Romans 8.28, everything will work together for good. But the point is this. <coughs> no believer has a hotline to God. All right? 
No believer has a hotline to God. This is the very reason we've been given the Bible. So that if we think the Lord is saying something, we can test it by the Bible. It helps us to establish what is or isn't of the Lord. Indeed, in the same way, the Lord puts us in community, beware the individualistic Christian. You know, beware the Christian who thinks that he's okay on his own with the Lord. The Lord brings us into community with other people for many reasons. So we can be loved, so we don't get lonely. But one of the reasons is so that we don't end up thinking that we can hear God on our own. We need to hear the Lord through the body. But there had to be an exception to this. And the exception to it were the apostles of Jesus plus Paul. Who did? Sorry? Well, yeah, Luke, indeed, but Luke was on Paul's apostolic team. So the point is, my understanding would be that when the Bible talks about the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that is not talking about how you plant churches. There are teachings you find where it says, well, a church can't be a New Testament church unless an apostle and prophet planted it. My understanding, when Paul talks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's talking about the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So that the point is, we have the New Testament uh, scriptures, we have the writings of the apostles themselves, but we also have writings of people who weren't apostles. But all of them were in significant relationship with apostles. And I would see them as prophets in the sense of bringing scripture. Um, Indeed, I believe that before the canon closed, and this is the relevance of women not being able to test prophecy, there was a testing of prophecy that was unique in the New Testament church. And I believe that there were very possibly times when prophecy was actually scripture. Now, this doesn't apply to us, because any prophecy we hear, we test it by the scripture. But then they didn't have the scripture. And so the point is, you had this one-off anointing, the apostles and other people like Luke and Jude and people like that, who I would define as prophets, related to the apostles, and these were the guys who wrote what we know to be the infallible, authoritative New Testament scriptures, which, with the Old Testament, completes God's revelation. Now then, we've always got more to learn about what the Bible says, Uh, you know, translations and and the words and stuff like that. But herein lies the complete... The Lord has nothing to add to this book in that sense, although you can't find out from the Bible who you're supposed to marry. But the apostles and the prophets had an infallible... They did have a hotline to God that no believer since can have. We don't need it. We've got the Bible. So that's my understanding. Yes, sir. Now, are you saying that you don't see the role of apostle as being a role that God has given for the church today? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that in the passage when in Ephesians, when Paul talks about the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's referring not there to apostles and prophets playing their part in planting churches. He's talking about the completed revelation of doctrine, if you like, that was coming through them. Um, Indeed, today, there are apostles, although of a completely different kind. Uh, Apostle is simply a sent one. Uh, My understanding of an apostle is, at the end of the day, anyone who breaks new ground for the Lord is an apostle. And this is what we see Paul doing and Peter. But Paul and Peter were also apostles in that unique sense. So, um, you know, think of it in terms of big A apostles, they're gone. 
But we've still got little A apostles. I mean, missionaries would, would probably be a fairly good word for them. And uh, I mean, I would, I would say that the best way to think of, uh, I mean, most of, uh, most of my understanding of the scripture comes through obviously reading the Bible, um, you know, availing myself of the learning of other people and reruns of Star Trek. And if you, if, if you really want to understand apostle, uh, you know, kind of Kirk was an apostle, the enterprise, to boldly go where no man has gone before. You, you always see apostles opening up new ground for the Lord. And uh, so, yeah, churches indeed are planted sometimes by apostolic workers, um, sometimes not. But they're totally different from the apostles who were the unique big A apostles who, through whose ministry we actually have the scriptures. Yeah. So I'd like to follow up um, it seemed that uh, the apostles had a role in the New Testament, not only planting churches, but also uh, clarifying issues of doctrine and truth. Absolutely. So they didn't have organizational authority, but they had some kind of uh, you know, doctrinal authority. Mm. And I'm wondering if you see that also as a, um, you know, a needed or valid role that, that, that these churches, which are independent organizationally, uh, you know, may need or, you know, I mean, God gave apostles to the church. Yeah, well, absolutely. The other roles. Uh, would there be a role for, of that function as, let, let's say, that uh, biblical churches mm. grow and expand and we see absolutely. them uh, uh, proliferate? Is there, is there a need for that role? Oh, yeah. Uh, translocal ministries, um, I, I think, are tremendously important. Sometimes you need that um, outside input. Uh, where, where I think uh, we need to, to clarify this um, importantly today is that when you when you look back um, to the the big A apostles Paul and people like that now these guys did have ultimate authority they had the very revelation Paul could teach something and say this is the command of the Lord with no scripture to turn up to prove his point no one can do that today if I'm going to say look here's the word of God you're going to say well okay let's see it you don't take a thing because somebody says it. You've got to test it with the word of God. But with the original apostles, you took it because they said it. So those guys had incredible authority. But what's interesting, even they were not authoritative in the way they carried out their ministry. Paul depended far more on trying to persuade people than he did commanding people. Paul understood there's no point saying, well, do it because I say so. He wanted people to do it because they saw it was right and because they wanted to do it because they loved the Lord. So what's interesting, the original apostles had ultimate authority. They were the walking New Testament. But even with that kind of authority you see that they were very, very childlike. I mean, they, they were, you know, Paul, he kind of, he, he persuaded people. He didn't come in wielding the big stick. That was all oh, the total last resort. And so, even though the original apostles had incredible authority, they never played the authority card unless it was absolutely vital. So, they kept their authority at total low level. Now then, when we come to apostles or translocal ministries today, what we need to understand is they don't have the authority that the original apostles had in any way at all. And what we need to understand is this. If I come in, if I mean, okay, this, this isn't a church, as it were, but, uh, you know, I mean, sort of like, uh, you know, earlier on in the week, I was speaking, teaching to a gathering of a church. Okay. Now, 
they are accepting of me as being a translocal ministry. They're saying, hey, Beresford, you're not part of us, um, but we think that, that you're a gift to the wider body. And, well, who knows, maybe if we give you an evening and you come and, you know, spout a while, we think maybe that's going to be really useful. So to that extent, I, I'm in a translocal ministry role. I'm coming in from the outside. But here's the vitally important thing. When it comes to authority and leadership and accountability in the church, we've reversed it. Everything in the church, we've reversed Accountability in the church works from the top down. In the wrong church, when you're unbiblical, it works from the bottom up, by which I mean this. In unbiblical churches, the accountability of the pleb on the pew is to the leader of that church. But the leader or leaders of that church, where, are they, where is their accountability to? The higher echelons of whatever denomination or setup they are. So the accountability is going up and out. What this means is the plebs are totally disenfranchised when it comes to input to leadership. And of course the danger is, how do you correct leaders when leaders only see themselves accountable to people who aren't part of the church? Now then, in the early church you see the exact opposite of this. I tried to bring this out at one point in the talks. When I was raising this question, this was why. In the church, remember, eldership is non-authoritarian. It is non-hierarchical in the Christian church. So I pose the question, where, where is the elders' accountability? Answer to the church like everyone else's, because they're just part of the church. So the thing is that, that our accountability is to the Lord himself through the revelation of Scripture. It's no use saying, oh no, you know, forget the Bible, I'm accountable to the Lord. I mean, the Bible is how we find out what the Lord wants of us. But also, our accountability can never be just to the Bible, because leave me alone with my Bible, I'm going to be deceived, because I'm just going to read my own sinful desires, blah, blah, blah. So I need to be part of an accountability, a group of people who enable me to understand God's ways the same way that I can play a part helping them to understand God's ways. So the point is, accountability is always to the church you are part of. Not to the elders. It is to the ecclesia, the gathered body of the church. So, therefore, in regards to that, who are elders accountable to? The church, just like everyone else. This is what I mean when I say they're non-hierarchical. Because if you've got hierarchy, the people under the authority are accountable to the person in authority, but the person in authority isn't accountable to those under them. But in the church, the leadership is accountable to the church. So the point is, if you have a ministry coming in from the outside, who's accountable to who? The outside ministry is accountable to that church as if he was part of it. You see what I mean? So you don't have this situation of the big chiefs coming in and the church, you know, bow and scrape because now one of the bigwigs is here. I mean, if I travel around to a fellowship, if I'm invited to be, you know, to come and, and, and to teach or try and help or give a bit of input to fellowship, I mean, I'll not, I'll not shrink from, from saying what maybe I think the Lord is saying, but at the end of the day I'm saying, well, here it is, it's over to you now. And if they say, you know, well, look, okay, we think you're completely wrong, I have no authority to say, well, you just buckle under, matey, because I've got a translocal ministry. Because who am I? I'm just part of another church, someone else. 
But when, when, when someone high up in the national hierarchy comes along, well, you've got to buckle under just because they're saying it. So, so, I mean, I remember talking to a, you know, someone a while ago, and he's part of one, you know, a typical what you call house church movement in England. I mean, it's so big now, they can't be part of houses, so they hire these massive halls, and they're just like a denominational church in every way. And they've got a big wig over them, the pastor. And, uh, and what they did... They used to be an independent fellowship, fairly small, and indeed, um, had things been different, could have become fairly biblical, but standard thing happens. One of the big house church networks moved in, put one of its men in there. You know, so, so the leaders who have been raised up from amongst the people, the true elders, they get pushed out, because now a bigwig's here, you see. And, uh, you know, so now this place, it's, I mean, it's like takeovers, it's a multinational, this little fellow had been taken over. So now it's much bigger because all the resources of this big national house church are poured into it. And I was chatting, you know, to one of the guys, and he was talking about the bloke who they see to be their pastor and stuff like that. And he was saying, oh, you know, I mean, it's so good for him, you know, to be part of this setup because, oh, he says, if he's finding it difficult, if he's got any problems, oh, well, it's so good because he's, he's got someone over him and, and, and he can go and it's so good because, of course, he wouldn't come to us. That's what it boils down to. That's what's wrong. That that's the whole point. He can't go to people under him. And the Bible calls that pride. And and so that's what built by accountability works into the church, not out of the church. And so at the end of the day, let's say I come along to a church, they say, Hey, come and come and teach, and I come along and I give a teaching and they say, Load of rubbish, right? Now then, I might be totally convinced it's right, they might be totally convinced it's wrong. But at the end of the day, they don't have to listen to me. They're free to be wrong. They're free to be wrong. And this is vitally important. Well, indeed, I might be wrong, but here's, here's the point. Regardless of who's right or wrong, the moment you get hierarchy, whatever's happening at the top filters down. Now, here's the problem. Because hierarchy filters down from the top, if the hierarchy goes wrong, it takes everything underneath it into that error. Now, we pray that one day <laughs> we will divide into other churches, that whether it's we'll see people converted or whatever, we haven't yet, we're actually smaller than ever. Uh, humanly speaking, the Chigwell Christian Fellowship is on the way out. But it's not. It's not. But humanly speaking, we're not doing too well. But one day we pray, you know, and we believe that, that the other lights, other candles will be lit from the little light that we're burning. We believe that's a word from the Lord and have, have no reason to doubt it. So when this happens, other fellowships, one way or the other, will come from our fellowship. Uh, whether it's starting a new church over there from scratch or whether it's dividing off because we've got so big and bang you've got two churches. Now, it's our understanding of what happens next is vital to what I would define as understanding what a biblical church is. And it's what won't happen. We will not see that any fellowships that come from us are the children and we are the mother church. Or we will not see in any way at all that they are the satellites and we're the mothership. Can you see what I mean? We will look upon them and honour them as completely independent churches, absolutely free to do consensually whatever they like. But of course, 
We will be available. If anyone thinks that we've got anything to give, anything to share, we will be fully available to help them in any way at all. I would imagine that people would say it would go without saying that let's say in um, well the rate we're going let's say by uh, 4051 because at this rate that's how long it's going to take all right but 3,000 years have gone past and we've planted out 10 churches so 10 churches one way or the other have come from the church we are at the moment now people would say well I mean the chances are or for a start we'll get for travelling around doing a bit of teaching at them all because, you know, to encourage them, get them going and stuff like that. Maybe every now and then we'll do a thing and we can all get together and have some teaching or whatever. And there'll be other guys with things. And indeed, in one of these churches, they might have some with a healing ministry and they lay hands on sick people and they get healed. I lay hands on sick people and they get worse. So you'd say, hey, can you come over and do some stuff with us, please? Because I've got real bad flu. All right. So you're going to have all this sharing out of ministries. But here's the point. Even if I was going around those churches, uh, you know, sort of doing uh, teaching for them, I would consider myself under their authority. They wouldn't be under my authority. You see, when I'm in my own church, I'm under the authority of my church. You see, I'm accountable to the family of God I'm with. Now, if I go somewhere else, now, let's say, you know, I mean, they say, hey, Bruce, look, we've got a real problem here, uh, you know, come in and help us sort it out. Well, I can go in, and I can give them what help they need, but they don't have to do what I say. And, you see, I'll tell you something as well. When you're biblical and you know it, you feel so secure, you don't need people to do what you say. That's lovely, that is. You need Lord's smile. You don't need people to do what you say. That's why I don't mind people disagreeing with me. I'm really cool with people disagreeing with me. I wish other people were as cool with disagreeing with me. You, you see what I mean? It doesn't, that's what security in the Lord does. But let's say you get a situation. Here's one of these churches, okay, we've planted it out. We, we, we help it where we can. And let's say, as a church, they sit round and they, you know, they, they read all this stuff in the Bible and they come to the conclusion, oh, all this stuff about women not being elders, load of rubbish, we want women elders. Well, let's say they do that. And they might say, hey, what do you think, Beresford? Or they might not ask me. Or indeed, we're friends, I feel quite. And I might say, hey, look, you know, do, you, do you think this is a good idea? You know, I mean, you know, kind of, I do not permit and all this stuff. And I'd, I'd rap with them about that. I'd want to sit down and say, hey, look, let's, you know. But let's say at the end of the day, they say, no, we want women elders. And we're having women elders. Well, this is an example of, I might not agree with what you say, but I'll die to defend your right to say it. Now, it might even be after that that I would feel, or oh, I'm not sure that I could actually go along too much on Sundays, you know, sort of like there, but it would not be an issue whereby I stopped have, being friends or having fellowship with people. Can you see what I mean? Because at the end of the day, if each church is independent, they're free to be wrong as well. And at least, if you've got biblical churches, let's say, that are independent, no matter how close they are, you understand they're independent. And remember, why are they independent? Because Jesus is their chief elder, the same as Jesus is our chief elder. Okay? And uh, at the end of the day, let's say one of them goes really bad. Let's say now it's not just a question of can women be elders. Let's say that real heresy comes in or immorality breaks out or stuff like that. Can I tell you the beauty? They don't take any of the other churches with them. Because each church is independent. Isn't that beautiful? But when you're part of a network that's hierarchicised, or whatever the word is, together, you know, all, all part of this bigger umbrella of authority, 
Well, I'll tell you, the chaos calls when someone higher than a mere church in that hierarchical setup goes off the wall. Chaos. And the tragedy is, in those kind of churches, when, when it starts to fall apart, the individual people in those churches, because they've depended on other people doing the leading, they can't stand up in their own right before the Lord because they haven't grown up in the Lord. And, and what all leadership is after is to do itself out of a job. It's to be there to help people until they don't need your help anymore. You're always still going to be there, but it's to bring them to maturity so they don't need to lean on you anymore. And that's, that, that's the point. Yes, sir? Numbers. Yep. Um, the institutional church is always... I've seen that being quite an issue. Yep. Uh, I see you with a read in your tapestry of referring to small numbers being the biblical precedent. Yeah. Um, my orientation, is, or, or what comes up on my, the screen in my mind is Jerusalem's church probably being a pretty good-sized congregation. Synagogues probably being some assembly places. Um, our fellowship is sensitive to this issue. Why are you promoting small numbers? Why is that kind of a, or at least I'm sensing from you, more the biblical precedent than yeah. uh, being a little bit more on the neutral level? Right, okay, yeah, let me answer that. There was not one giant church in Jerusalem. There was a countless number of churches. Um, but, but because they came about in that kind of explosion, um, I mean, obviously, the way they related together would have made it look like it was just one big church. And the thing about the meeting in the synagogues, there is no evidence they met in the synagogues. And, I mean, in, the, in, in literally the earliest days, they would still go and assemble at the temple. You know, I mean, just, just to hang out together. But the point is, you've got to understand that they soon... No evidence anywhere that the churches met anywhere other than in houses. So by definition, they were all small. But of course, the point is, you can still have greatly growing numbers. And all for the day, when we see people, lots of people converted, all you're doing is you're just multiplying the number of churches. That's all you're doing. So we're not talking about, um, you know, sort of like us for and no more, as, uh, you know, some people phrase it. Um, you know, I mean, we're in a situation that because it's very pioneer, yeah, most house church, or most biblical churches that I'm talking about, us in England, we're isolated, we're on our own, uh, we're not really seeing converts, but no one else is seeing converts. I mean, the only people seeing significant converts in England are the people preaching the kind of gospel that any sinner would be interested in. Can you see what I mean? It's a, it's a sinner-friendly gospel. Uh, the places that actually present repentance... Um, and really selling out to Jesus and, and that obviously being a, a counting the cost thing. Um, I, you know, I'm, I mean, unlike, unlike some people who, I mean, anything to get them in, you know, the slightest interest, oh, let's just get people in, let's just get them saved. Uh, I'm just as likely to send someone away and say, well, look, come back and see me next week because, all right, you want to follow Jesus, but look, you've got to realise what it might mean. And Jesus would take that approach. He, he'd put people off. Um, but the point is that, yeah, as one grows and sees numbers growing, uh, I mean, you're going to have total chaos, but, I mean, that's fine. They had chaos in Jerusalem. But out of that chaos, the Lord brings order. He did that in creation, didn't he? And, uh, you know, so, I mean, the day, 
you know, I mean, I would say, yeah, I mean, an individual church isn't going to be much above 25, 30 people, uh, you know, but I mean, the day when I'm, you know, sort of desperately trying to help 40, 50, 60, 70 of them, I'll please Lord as soon as possible. Um, so, so, so the thing about limiting the size, and, and this is important to understand, that the, the important thing about house is that it limits sizes. And it limits sizes because the nature of what the church did meant it had to be few in number. Or you can't do it. If you've got loads of people, not everyone... I mean, in the average church, especially here in America, can you imagine if they said, OK, right, next week we're going to do... When we come together, each one has. We want everyone to take part. And because there's so many of us, we're going to start on Wednesday night... And we're going to finish on Tuesday week. Yeah, I mean, it's a nonsense. And with loads of people, you can't have the Lord's Supper as a full meal. And they're the two things that they came together to do. And so, therefore, you've got to have a limit with numbers, or you cannot do what you're meant to do. And here's the point. If you're not doing what you're meant to do in your church Sunday by Sunday, can I tell you, you're not growing properly in the Lord. Because the means to grow properly isn't there. Can you grow in the law sitting to, you know, just listening to someone blasting on and on week in, week out, sermon on this, sermon on that? I mean, how does that, how does that disciple you? And not to say there's not a, a place for even lecture type teaching, but not on Sundays. Not on Sundays. So, so, so we're not saying we want small numbers full stop. We're saying we want small numbers in churches and we want loads of churches. And if I was to define what I, I, mean, what I long to see, and this would be the ideal, I don't know if this is going to happen or not, it's down to the Lord, not me, a church in every street. That's, that's, that's what you're after. What would you do when you hit 70? Uh, we, we, we've, hit, we've hit 70 once before. And since then, we've hit the sort of numbers where you think we've got to start thinking about dividing. And every time this has happened, we've had a major church split. And people go off saying that, well, you know, nasty, nasty things happening. And so, in effect, we've, 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 we've never got there. We've, we've got to big numbers. Um, but we've, we've been through... Uh, stages, especially in the early years where, you know, new church doing a new thing, it's kind of faddy, and all the spiritual gypsies. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the believers who are honestly out in the wilderness because they've been pushed out. I'm talking about all the weirdos, all the people with the hotline to God, who have fallen out with 20 other churches, and it's always because they don't get their own way. They all come to you. And so we've, we've ended up with almost, I'd say, a factor sometimes of 50% of people like that. Well, I mean, you know, you're on a heading for a hiding. And, uh, and we found that each time when we've got to the place where we think, hey, we're going to need to divide down now, we've sort of found that, uh, you know, that there have been the explosions and people have gone off and, well, so we've not reached that yet. But, uh, oh, yeah, please, can we get there soon, Lord? But uh, we have no control over that. Mark? Yes, sir. This is a curiosity question. And yep. Forgive me if I word this in a clumsy way, but I've sat all day hearing Lord's Day, Lord's Day, Sunday, Sunday. Do you yeah. believe that Christianity works differently on one day a week from all the other days? May I have a Lord's Supper on Friday night? Um, it's, it's interesting. In, in Acts 20, when uh, we have Paul meeting with the church at Troas, um, Luke, in his commentary in Acts, because he is with Paul at that time, um, talks about the, you know, when, when we came together on the first day of the week. <coughs> now, what's interesting is that when you get the Greek, tear the Greek apart there, it doesn't come across very, very clearly um, in, in the English. And the push behind it, so the experts tell me, is that it's more that 
that, that when we came together on the first day of the week, as is our habitual custom, so from that one verse, and indeed in some of the scholars, one of the things they all had in common was saying this was on the Sundays. Did, did you get that thread? All the scholars were there. It's partly because of this verse. Actually, I found that some scholars say Sunday and some say Saturday night. Yes. From, Saturday, from Friday night to Saturday night. As you yeah, in, in, indeed. Let me, let me deal with that. It is true, of course. I mean, there's, there's no doubt the early church met on the first day of the week. All right? And from that verse in Acts 20, we know that that was Paul's habitual custom. That comes across in the Greek. That's what, that was one of the traditions he put to the church. And indeed, when it talks about to break bread, also in the Greek, is that that was the reason they were coming together every Sunday. So the Lord's Supper is a full meal, because that's what breaking bread means, to have a full meal. That was why the church came together. That was the irreducible minimum of what was to happen. So we know from that alone um, that the churches did meet on the first day of the week and it was primarily to have the Lord's Supper as a full meal. However, there is the point, it's difficult to know at various points which calendar Luke is referring to. The Greeks had their calendar, the Romans had another, the Greeks had another. Now, the Jews did indeed, the, the day began in the early evening. All right. So, therefore, technically, the first day of the week, if a church came together and met at 6 o'clock on Saturday evening... Technically, by the Jewish calendar, they are meeting on the first day of the week. And I would accept on a technicality, there's no argument with that. However, when it comes to calendars, you find always in the scripture that people just adapt and go by whatever calendar they're being subject to. And that given that in our society, our day doesn't begin in the evening. Our day begins when you get up. So the point is, if scripture shows us that they met on the first day of the week, how daft for us living under a calendar that starts in the morning when you wake up, how daft to say, well, we're going to, buy a cal- you know, we're going to go buy a calendar that we don't observe in this country and do it Saturday night. Because whichever way you hack it, you're then meeting on Saturday night. So, so I would say, yeah, if someone... I mean, I'd be the first to say, I would rather go to a church that met on Wednesday but was biblical in every other way that I've defined it. Of course I would. I'd rather go to a church like that on a Wednesday than an unbiblical church on a Sunday. Um, but I suppose the point is that uh, why not just do it the first day of the week? And I suppose if someone felt, well, technically it's a Saturday night, but I couldn't buy into that because our Sunday starts Sunday morning. So for us, the first day of the week is from when you get up Sunday morning to when you go to bed again. So, so that would be you know, how I'd say that. But yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, if uh, you know, I suppose if the government made it illegal to have more than three people getting together on a Sunday, well meet another night of the week I mean it's, it's, you know, it's not a question of art for art's sake but the point is you must still be doing what the bible says a church is for or it's not a church anymore but yeah uh, over here sir have you any thoughts on why the apostles did not continue the war with the Sanhedrin that Jesus was obviously waging uh, against them and their false practices it doesn't seem that that was the focus of the apostles after that time Well, it was simply, it was a a, a war that had been won. Um, Now, it was, obviously, it was very, very hard for the churches in Jerusalem, as Jews, to to break away from their Judaism. That's understandable. You see this thing, Peter, after he's been a Christian for years, happily eating with Gentiles, the circumcision party turn up and he withdraws from them. 
even though they were brothers and sisters. And Paul rebukes him publicly because he did it publicly. All right. Um, so, yeah, they, they struggled with getting away from the Judaism thing. But the point is, the tradition of the elders thing was now irrelevant because that was Jesus focusing on Israel, trying to get Israel to accept him. Israel rejected him, so Israel got rejected itself. Though I would maintain the scripture says one day Israel is going to be back. But the point is, once, once the church was there, although it began, off, it began Jewish, it very fast became Gentile, which was the whole point. The Gentiles were then grafted in as the branches, the Jews having been cut out. And so, therefore, the push... I mean, even though they, say, got it wrong here and there, the circumcision party, but nevertheless, the push was that they were heading out from Jerusalem, whereas Jews always headed into Jerusalem. You know, they were Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and it wasn't particularly relevant anymore. But the person who did carry it on all the time was Paul. I mean, Paul didn't let it go, but the, the issues then weren't the silly little traditions. It was circumcision, it was the very question, do people in the new covenant have to come under the old covenant? And of course the answer was, no, of course they don't. Of course they don't. Um, but that was a struggle for the Jews, certainly. Uh, one, are we done? Well, one quick one. One quick one. Okay, go for it, Dan. Oh, I have no question. I'm ah. my wife, no. Oh! <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. I will ask this. I'll go out on a limb. I've just addressed real quick, if you would, the idea of cell groups. Why not just have Sunday morning church, like we do it here in America, yep. and then Sunday night have cell groups? Why not just do both? Right. Because what you've got there is the cell groups are not churches. They're little bodies of their satellites rotating around the mothership. The business gets done on Sundays where everything they then do is unbiblical. So the point is that when you get churches doing cell groups, they're, they're, they're virtually saying on the Sundays we're not meeting the need, we're not doing the job. So let's have cell groups. Now the whole point is, if a church with cell groups understands that, okay, it's got cell groups, great. The next thing it has to do is disband as a church, cease to exist. Then the cell groups can meet on the Sunday and you can get on and be a biblical church. Have the Lord's Supper as a full meal, open, interactive worship and sharing together. The problem is that with cell groups, it looks more biblical, it's not. Because when the church comes together on the Lord's Day... Everything they do is unbiblical. It's all based on an hierarchy. Uh, there's lead worship. There's no open worship. The Lord's Supper is, you know, kind of not a meal anymore. That the whole thing is as unbiblical as if it was a Catholic church. And so I'd say with the church doing cell group, uh, dissolve the church. Then the cell groups can meet on Sundays. And if anyone's there who knows what they're talking about, they can travel around the cell group saying, well, you could have open worship. You could have the Lord's Supper as a full meal and stuff like that. And the pastor can go get a job. And, um, you know, and then he can become part of one of the churches and later on if he gets called into full-time work, fine, if the church recognises him. But what you've got to remember is this. When you get these pastors of churches and things like that, the problem is, the real problem, they've been imposed from the outside. They've been accepted as the expert without being tested. And here's the point. The reason that elders in the New Testament are raised up from among the people they're going to lead is for this reason. How would anyone know that this elder passes all the qualifications that Paul gives for being an elder unless you've, one, known him intimately, two, for years? You can never know. You can never know. And what we do, we have someone come along, they've got the smile, 
they've got the communication skills, they've got the doctrine, they've got the business management. Oh, he's qualified to be an elder. Uh-uh. None of those things are the qualifications for an elder. Okay. God of peace shall be with you. My encouragement here is that we hammer out what we think those things are, and then when we get agreed on it, then we stop fussing and we do it. That's my that's my hope. That's my desire for my family and those that we are with. And uh, uh, I think that's what Barrett has been saying today. Let's talk about it. Let's get it uh, figured out. If you only got a little bit of it figured out, then start moving. Okay, so. For more information, contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www.house-church.org.